Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you this morning on this chilly, but I hear it's warming up Sunday morning. Glad to see your faces. And a special welcome to those who are visiting with us for the very first time. So glad to see some new faces in the house today. Also, thank you so much to those of you who are watching us online through Facebook. So glad to have you here today as well. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm super excited to be here on this Sunday morning. I have a lot to share this morning, so I want to get right right into the Word. I have the privilege of concluding a teaching series that we started several weeks ago, a series that we're simply calling Seasons of the Soul. And in this season, we're learning to thrive and not just survive in the various changing seasons of life, right? Some of us have gotten really good at just sort of hanging on and not falling off. But how many of you know that Jesus wants us to live the good life? He wants us to figure out how to thrive, not just survive, whatever life throws at us, right? And so the question we've been trying to ask and answer is how do we get to a place where we're inwardly stabilized with deep and abiding faith despite whatever season we're in. And we begin this series with a challenge from Jesus, and this challenge is simple. Build your house on the solid rock, right? Shannon opened the series in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus compares the sand to the solid rock that is his life, his statutes, his principles, and he urges us, no, he commands us to build our life with the raw materials of our life uh, on something that's going to be around tomorrow. Sands are shifting and moving under us, and it won't stand up in the day of high winds. And so we've been urged to build our life on the firm foundation that is Christ. And so throughout the series, we've been sort of dealing with a couple of seasons of life that might give us a window into how we can weather these various storms so that we might uh, thrive and not just survive. So far, we've covered disappointment, seasons of fear. And Shannon talked to us last week about the importance of choosing joy uh, despite what uh, season of life we might be in. We've had some really fruitful conversations so far. And there are many more seasons we could tackle if we had the time. We could spend the t- uh, you know, months in a series like this. Uh, but today I want to conclude by talking about another important season of the soul, and that is the season of success. How, how do we work and how do we live and how do we get along in seasons of success? We've talked plenty about how to, to, to weather the down seasons of life, but what about the upwinds? We've talked at length about how to carry on when you don't get what you want. But we thought maybe we should touch on how do we live, how do we thrive when we do get what we want. So I want you to think for a moment. For many of you, it won't be hard to think about what is your wildest dream, right? Your wildest dream. What is it? I've often asked people, and if I'm just making conversation, hey, if you can write your own ticket, like, who would you be? If you can write your own ticket, where would you live? Like, what, what career would you have? And so in your wildest dream, if your prayers were answered, like, what would come to you? Would it be riches? Some of you want not just a little bit of money, but a lot of money. Some of you want to be famous. Some of you want to have the admiration of your peers and strangers alike. Some of you want beauty, right? Attractiveness, a great physique. Some of you want career fulfillment. 
or romance in relationship. The list goes on and on and on. What would that look like? A better question is, what would you do if your wildest dreams came true? Who would you be if your wildest dreams came true? Now, here's what I know. Here's what I know. Some of us would be just fine. <laughs> Maybe a small portion of us would be just fine if all of our wildest dreams came true. But, but here's what else I know. Most of us, perhaps nearly all of us, would lose our minds if our prayers were answered. You know, them prayers that only you, you and God know about. We would lose our mind. In fact, one of God's most merciful, merciful acts is to say no to some of our wildest dreams. One of the ways that God shows his profound mercy and goodness to us, I didn't say you, I say us, is not letting some of our wildest dreams come true. Why is this? Because most of us wouldn't pass what one of my favorite preacher calls one of life's great tests, and that is the test of success. I say it again for those all the way in the back. Most of us simply would not pass one of life's greatest tests, and that is the test of success. I'm defining success as your winning season. Could you pass the test of success. Are you passing the test of success? And I'm defining success rather broadly today because most of us would never be sort of wildly successful, rich and famous and all those extravagant things. But many of us will enter what I call winning seasons of life where you experience the fullness of God's goodness toward you, where some of your prayers will be answered, or some of the seeds that you have sown into the ground will spring up, and you'll enjoy a season of harvest, a winning season, and so I'm divining success rather broadly. Some of you will experience unexpected fortune and blessing. Now, how you handle those seasons how you walk through those seasons, whether or not you remember God in those seasons determines whether or not we pass or fail. I'm simply calling this message this morning the test of success. Jesus has some wisdom for us. We'll look at it in Luke chapter 12. So would you meet me there in your Bibles this morning? Luke chapter 12, we'll start at verse 13. While you find it, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your goodness and mercy. I thank you for yet another opportunity to stand before your people to bring your word. Would you meet us here as we sing? Come and meet us. Come and teach us. Come and instruct us. Lord, put the full-length mirror of your word in front of us. Show us us this morning. And may we reckon with this morning whatever you show us. Come, Holy Spirit, put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen. The test of success, we're in Luke chapter 12. I'm starting at verse 13. 
Reads this way. Then someone called from the crowd, teachers, talking to Jesus, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide these things? Then, then he said, excuse me, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Verse 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and the other goods. Verse 19, I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Nice, warm, fuzzy text on a brisk Sunday morning. What do we encounter here? A man interrupts Jesus as he's going about his business. He's teaching as he normally does. And a guy from the crowd, some random dude, interrupts Jesus and asks him to help him solve what feels, at least to him, like an important family matter. Now, this wasn't uncommon for common people to approach wise men, teachers, and rabbis like Jesus to, to get some help with their common problems. And it tells us what this man's common problem was. He, he said, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. No context, no nothing. Didn't introduce himself. Didn't give him the backstory. He just yells from the crowd this one sentence, look, Jesus, straighten my brother out for me. Apparently, he's engaged in a family financial spat between him and his brother. Interestingly enough, we don't get much details from the text. We don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know whether or not he or his older brother is in the wrong. It may be the case that he's referring to his older brother who rightfully got a larger share of the father's estate and the younger brother wants him to split it more evenly. We simply do not know. What we do know is that Jesus really doesn't want to get involved. Jesus really uh, doesn't want to get involved. At least Jesus doesn't want to get involved in the way that this guy wants him to get involved. We know as much because in verse 14, Jesus replies to the strange guy yelling out of the midst of the crowd, friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as this? And at this moment, you think Jesus is going to move on to something else, but he doesn't. And this young man gets more than he bargained for because Jesus can't resist this teaching moment. Good teachers can't resist, right? Good parents can't resist these teaching moments. You say, this guy just teed me up real nice. I got to hit the ball. I got to lean in on this. And he says this, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And I'm thinking that the brother's thinking like, this is, this is not what I was asking you about. This is out of nowhere. And maybe he turns to walk away in disappointment, but the teacher's not finished. He launches into a story. He launches into a parable, which is a made-up story, right? Stories are useful for making your point, but parables, you get to make them up 
And you get to construct every detail of a parable to make your point. This is one of Jesus' favorite teaching tools. He tells a story of a guy who gets success wrong. He tells a story of a successful guy who is winning at life Every measurable category of earthly success, for this man at least, is up and to the right. And yet, Jesus paints a picture of someone who fails at being successful. They don't pass the success test. I want to pull out a few observations from this text this morning. Because the gentleman in this story that Jesus makes up makes a series of mistakes when he achieves a measure of success that leads to his demise. And the goal of me telling this story today and expounding on this text is so that you and I won't make the same mistakes. Or so that you and I can recover from these mistakes if we've already, if we've already made them. We should heed this as a warning to us. Jesus, of course, says, beware. This is a warning. Several observations the first thing I notice about this guy who gets success wrong is that he looks inwardly when success comes. First tactical error is that he looks inwardly. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to who? Himself. What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. He looked around the room of his life. He said, I am doing pretty good here. I'm the man. I'm a pretty sharp cat. I am killing the game right now. As he pondered his next move, he went and found the wisest person that he knew to ask what he should do next. He didn't look very far because he asked himself. He looked inwardly in his winning season. And friends, the worst thing you can do when you become successful when you enter a winning season, is to look inward. The scriptures tell us, lean not on our what? Own understanding. And my father, the late Gene Ollison, would often say that his best thinking got him in the worst shape of his life. <laughs> and if, you, if you're honest with yourself, too, you think the biggest mess you made, you weren't following somebody else's advice, your best thinking. Found yourself in the gutter of life. He asked, who, who, can I, who can I get to help me with this dilemma? I know, I'll ask myself. And the danger, of course, friends, is that your, your advice to yourself always centers who? It centers you. Now, you sit with that for a second. And while you're sitting with that, I want to drop in your lap a remembrance of who we are and what we're supposed to be on this earth. Listen, don't miss next week because we're bring, beginning a brand new series called Identity. Well, we will uh, focus on what our identity as we're defining it. What did God have in mind for me when he made us? That's our identity. Not who you're comparing yourself to, not what you aspire to be. Like your identity is who, what God had in mind for you. When, when, when he made you. That's what we'll explore over the next few weeks, so come back for that. But I'll drop in your lap as you ponder this, the greatest commandments, our purpose, right? God comes up to Jesus, says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him a simple 
answer, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these commandments. We say this so much. We've got this printed on all of our stuff. Love God, love people. It's who we are. It's who we're created to be. It it is the measuring stick. It is the sieve for every decision we should make in life. Love God, love others. Say, preacher, okay, we get that. What's the relevance? Well, this guy looks inward when everything about the scriptures tell us to look where? Upward and outward. Sit with that for a second. Our instincts cause us to look inward, especially when we're winning, also when we're losing. But the guiding principles of Scripture, the greatest commandments, always have us looking upward for wisdom and advice from the Creator with a posture of gratitude and humility for the good fortune that we're experiencing, right? How can I please you with what you've given me? How can I make my next move in a way that is, show, is both humble and shows gratitude and, and surrender? We're to look upward, but that's not all we're supposed to look. We're also supposed to look outward. How does my life, how does my wealth and the stuff I have, how does my winning season, how can this benefit other people? Because after all, I am here for the greater glory of God and for the well-being of what? Other people. I'm supposed to look upward and outward, but our tendency, friends, is to look where? To look inward. You got to hear me when I say this. These greatest commandments to look upward and outward, you will never outgrow them. You'll never, never stop having to work against the instinct to look inward. I thought maybe as a preacher, after you cross maybe five, ten years, maybe get 12 or so years into this, you get some sort of wings and you never have to fight against the urge to look inward. I haven't got my wings yet. Maybe there's a supply chain issue someplace, but they haven't come. We will never outgrow this commandment and we will never stop having to fight against the urge to look within ourselves. This is why failure and especially success can be a dangerous place to be because these are the moments when we are most tempted to look inward, especially when you're winning, right? Especially, man, when you achieve some success. I need to look in the mirror, check out who's making all this happen. And what further complicates things, ladies and gentlemen, is that we get a lot of help from others to look inward, especially when we're winning. When you're winning at life, people start to gas you up more. Isn't that true? When you're winning at life and you're successful in one area, people tend to credit you with expertise in other areas. You ever see this happen? 
Now, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But you find a guy who made millions making pillows. All of a sudden, everybody wants to hear what he has to say about complex political matters. All of a sudden, this guy who put feathers in a, in a cloth bag and made millions, he's, he's an infectious disease expert now, too. Now, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But just because you made a fortune in this category doesn't automatically, you don't get an honorary degree in the other categories of life. But the way fame and fortune and success works is people are willing to credit you and give you credibility and to gas you up and to ask you for your opinions on matters that you have not earned the right to speak on. It's complicated because success. One of my favorite uh, 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 plays is Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody ever watch this play? Especially Topol's version. Topol plays this guy, Tevier, who is Jewish sort of milkman. It's set in the 1900s in the Russian village of Anatevka. Tevier's poor but he desires to be rich so bad. He regularly fantasizes about being rich. And in one of my favorite scenes of the movie, he starts singing this song called If I Were a Rich Man. And in this song, he sort of fantasizes about life as a rich man. Anybody remember this? If I were a rich man. Oh, you saw it too. <laughs> All day long, I pity, pity, right? But one of my favorite stanzas of the song, he gets to a section where he would fantasize about what life would be like if he were rich. And he starts to sing with great vibrato this section. He said, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They'd ask me to advise them like Solomon the wise. They'd say, pardon me, Reb Tevye, if you please, Reb Tevye. And they'd be posing questions to me that would cross a rabbi's eyes. These questions would be so significant and important. And then he says this. He says, and it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. Because when you're rich, they think you really know. Does that not capture the essence? of one of the dangers of success. Not just what you do to yourself, but what people help you do to yourself, and that is to have an inflated opinion of yourself. And so you start asking yourself questions that you should be asking other qualified people. You start asking yourself things that you should be looking upward for. And this is one of this man's problems. He asked himself a question that he should have been asking the giver of all of that good fortune. And some of you feel attacked by this word this morning. You're in good company because I feel attacked myself, and we're just on the first point. This was only his first tactical error. He makes a second one, and that is he planned to build larger barns when he became successful. He planned to build large, larger barns. 
And this is what begins to happen when you look inwardly. You're attempted to congratulate yourself, or should I say over-congratulate yourself, on a job well done. And what follows is you aim your success and the spoils thereof of not upward, as you should, not outward, as you should, but inward. He didn't say, man, I am killing it, bro. My barns are bursting. Let me be a blessing to God and others. He didn't say, man, I got plenty. I am killing it. What a year we had. I got more than I will ever be able to use. Let me be a blessing. Is this what he said? No. This man had a better idea. After all, he's the expert. He's the man. So he asked of himself a consequential question, which we learn has eternal significance, and he gives himself a stupid answer. Verse 18, then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. See the inward focus? See the lack of upward and outward consideration? Now, before you say, listen, none of this applies to me because I'm not rich, but this is us when we taste just the tiniest taste of success. When we just get two big toes in our winning season, this is us, right? Some of us get a little money. And we don't become more generous. In fact, it makes us more stingy if your soul isn't anchored. Some of you get a new job. Doors start opening up. Business starts to take, uh, taking off. And guess what? It doesn't make you press into faith. It doesn't make you press into community with a, with a disposition of gratitude for the giver of these good gifts. You disappear. I've been, around my, I've been around church my whole life. I see it over and over and over. And sometimes when people tell me good news, I celebrate with them. And other times they tell me, I go, better get a hug real quick. You're going to see that one for a while. And you know I'm right. You start working on Sundays. It's about to get tight. You start planning things over the things that used to matter to you because now you got to keep it. We used to have to like politely like blink the lights just so you can know, hey, it's time to leave church. You got to go now. Now we got to send the dog, the hounds out. Sniff the, this is a sweater we found in the, in the coat room. This, used to didn't miss small group. Found yourself in two or three of them because, right? Some of you other things have caused you to drift, but others of you, it's like you got what you were praying for and you forgot where it came from. Because you got to keep it now. Some of you lose a little weight. 
get a little cute. And you start getting attention from the opposite sex, married or single, and you lose your mind. I'm half joking, but I'm, I'm not really joking. And now you got to work husband. Now you got to work wife. Now you're flirting and you're entertaining flirtatiousness that is going to lead to destruction. And now everything's hanging out. Everything's tight. Everything's short. And I'm talking about the guys. got cute and you lost your mind. That gift that God gave you starts getting noticed. Folks start tagging you and retweeting your stuff. And it went to your head. Ministry starts to take off and now you can't preach at the smaller churches anymore. You're charging folks now for autographs and photo opportunities. He started to blow up and he lost his mind. He's failing at the success test. More inward looking. And this was only his second error. There's at least one more. He began to overvalue comfort. when he started winning. Now, this is super important to us because I think that we can reasonably assume that this guy was no slouch. I, think we can re- I don't think we'd be taking liberties to assume that this was perhaps a hard-working guy who lightly didn't gain his wealth and success by sitting on the couch binge-watching, I don't know, you know, blue bloods, I don't know. We can reasonably assume that this was a hard-working guy. But something is shifting as he looks at his wealth, pats himself on the back, takes his own advice. Something is shifting within him as he's examining his plans for the future. Verse 19, and I'll sit back and say to myself, after I build bigger barns to house all my stuff at my own advice, I'll say to myself, friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be, and be merry. Now don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with rest. God models it at creation. Christ offers it to us. Come unto me, all who are weary, right? Nothing wrong with rest. Nothing wrong with food, drink, and merriment. Nothing wrong with those things. But when those things start driving the bus, you better hop out the window quick. When those things get centered in your life, rest, ease, comfort, food, drink, merriment, when it becomes what you're driving toward, Jesus says, be where? 
beware. And this message is especially important to, to us as 21st century Western Americans. Because as we talked about several weeks ago, we, we love to get on that up escalator. To see what's up there. You're taught from a very young age to, to make all you can, save all you can. And at the same time, spend all you can. And if you, if you can't, you know, reasonably amass wealth, try to look richer than you are. Fool them. Look inward. But Jesus responds to this. Simply put, God was not pleased. And Jesus drives home his point by ending this story with a punctuation mark. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? I mean, if you're like me, this is just, this just runs you through, doesn't it? Sit here as a preacher and go and try to rationalize. Say, well, my profession is noble. I I help people. It's a joke because even those of us who do what we do can aspire to the right things for the wrong reasons. Can pursue growing the church, growing the kingdom, not because it rescues those who are dangling on life's cliff. Because it makes life easier for me. Because it raises my profile. Because important people might come to fawn on me and ask me to advise them. Jesus says, you fool. When you die, and you will die, and they put you in a box, they don't put none of that stuff in the box with you. continues by saying, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth or to go after the wrong things but not have a rich relationship with God. What is he talking about? Looking upward and not inward. And proper looking upward will always cause us to also look where? Outward. So some of you say, preacher, you got my attention. Where do we go from here? How do we walk this out? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Whether you're in a wedding season now or praying for one later, it behooves us to pay attention. Simply put, don't look inward in your winning season. Don't inquire inwardly, but continue to look up and to look out. Why? Because I need God all the time. I especially need him. Hear me, church. I especially need him when I'm winning. And it is the easiest thing to do, to lose sight of the living God when you are winning. Because in the depths of your despair in the in, in, in the valleys of the shadows of death you reach for him you've got no other option but on the mountaintop you're distracted and unaware of your need 
for Savior. I need God most when I'm winning. I need the voices of others most when I'm winning. I need the counsel of the godly when I'm winning. I need to be around some people who are not impressed by me. They love me. They like me. But they are not impressed by me. I'm so grateful for my wife. Don't matter where I go or how good I preach or good a song I write. She likes me. She loves me. But I said, baby, how was that? She said, meh. <laughs> Even when she likes it, she goes, mm, it's all right. Why? Because she knows that these feet needs to stay on the ground. You better get some friends who aren't impressed by you. You better get you some friends who don't need anything from you so that when your breath begins to stink, they can tell you. So when you say a joke that's not funny, they don't laugh. And when you start to get beside yourself and lose yourself and get full of yourself, they say, bro, what's, what's gotten into you? Where you been? Why are you posting that, bro? That's not your wife. Why are you in that girl's face? You got friends like that? You got brothers and sisters like that that don't care if you get an attitude. They don't care if you're upset because they are committed to your success. I need others more when I'm winning. Perhaps even than when I'm losing. Don't Look inward. And the best way to practice this so that you are successful at being anchored in your winning season, you know when you practice being, you know, not looking inward? Just in the normal, like, seasons of life. This is not a skill you learn once you become successful. This is a daily practice of looking upward and outward in the valley, on the smooth plains of life. And if you manage to get a rhythm of that in the low and regular seasons of life, you have a better chance of looking upward and outward when you start winning. Don't look inward in your winning season. But start practicing now. Second way we walk this out is don't build larger barns <laughs> in your winning season. Resents that temptation to go bigger and to go better whenever you get another nickel. This is spiritual formation. This is training. Learn to swim against the current of that which draws you toward an inflated sense of self. There's a strong current that's toward, pushing you towards self-admiration. There's a strong current that's always trying to draw you toward the flickering flame of self-congratulation and self-importance. So learn to swim against the current of that at all costs. And the way you practice this so that you can do this well when you're winning is to do it when you're losing. 
to do it when things are even. To resist the urge to, to pine and to covet more and bigger and better and to keep up with the Joneses. The Joneses are in debt up to their eyelashes. The practice contentment and humility and inward and, and, and outward and upward looking. This takes practice. Don't build bigger. Don't chase larger. And finally, don't idolize comfort and ease. Don't do it. Worship team, you can come up. Friends, because there's something about excess comfort that makes us totally useless to God and others. There's something about idolizing and coveting excess comfort and ease that take us out of the game with absolute certainty. And some of you, you, you can see this in your life right now. Some of us are drawn to comfort and ease in, in really destructive ways as a general way of life. Everything you're doing and everything you're working towards is so that you might have it easier or so that things can be smoother. You're, building, you're stacking your whole week with, 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 with the goal being how, mu- how much chill time, how much me time can I get? And it's costing you relationship. It's costing you spiritual growth and maturity. It's costing you the opportunity to press into the things that God has for you. And, and listen, listen this, this has cost you. I'm talking to the person in here who you structure your week so that you have as much of the, the, the edges and the margins of your life to yourself. You structure how you are going to structure your finances and what you're going to give to and how much money you're going to Everything centers how much, how can I feather my nest? That's you. That's how you live. That's how you think. And when you feather your nest and only your nest, God suffers and people suffer. And that's what you're here for. That's what you're on this earth for, for the greater glory of God, for the well-being of other people. Who am I talking to today? Watch what you value. Watch what your heart longs for. Pay attention to your prayers. What are you praying for? We look up, we look out. We understand that a life of generosity and great stewardship of God's blessings is who we're called to be. And we understand that Jesus' goal was not comfort, but to be about his father's business. Are you passing the success test? How are you stewarding your winning seasons? And if you're like me, you know, if, 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 if the teachers were handing back the papers, you know, of the test, mine would be kind of folded like this. You know, how the teacher slips you. If you got an A, they give you a paper. Here you go, Jimmy. He, when, when, they, when they come to me, they go, here you go, man. See, see me later. Some of you got to see me on this test. That's okay. That's okay. 
It's better to fail the practice test than to get up high and come crashing down. And so I would that each of, I didn't say you, each of us would heed this warning and say yes to the Lord. I don't know what saying yes looks like to you, for you, but we're all in the same boat today. I'm talking about the success test. I hope you pass it. Let me pray. Lord, you've arrested us with this. You've, in, you've indicted us in the most merciful way. And we just ask that you come right now. For those of us who have started to drift, for those of us who have valued the wrong things and we're beginning to look inward, Lord, draw us back. in us. And God, we work to place you at the center of our life again. God, if you don't want it for us, we don't want it. If it's going to derail us, then keep it far from us. in this moment. In Jesus' name.